0: Welcome to it's all political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today on the podcast we have another presidential candidate here in San Francisco. It's Marianne Williamson. Now I know some of you are saying, "Oh, she's the wacky new age lady. I don't, and she's not going to have a chance." She may or may not, but you have to listen to what she says. She is talking about issues here. That are fundamental to the what's wrong with America, and she's a, a unique way of talking about it. And she's connecting with voters. I saw it myself at a rally of hers in Oakland. She connects with voters like, like no other candidate does. But we talk to her about other issues, like can you really beat President Trump with a moral argument? And we press her on her stance on vaccination. There's another controversy that's come up, and she answers those questions. Plus, she reveals which candidates have the best energy and which have the worst. Marianne Williamson, next on It's All Political. Marianne Williamson, welcome to It's All Political. Welcome to the city of St. Francis.
1: Thank you so much.
0: And welcome back home to California. You're, yeah.
1: a, you're I a, a, lived in San Francisco in the mid-70s. You did?
0: Mm-hmm. Where'd you live? I lived in Oakland.
1: I oh. lived in San Francisco. I've lived in Marin County.
0: Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. So I saw your. speaking of Oakland, I was at your rally last night in Oakland, and I I think I get it more. I, I, I get where uh, your support is coming from where you know, and uh, the people there told me, one woman told me there, Marianne saved my life. That's, you don't hear that kind of stuff at a Klobuchar rally. <laughs> you know, that's, a, that's, that's a very unusual thing. And as you write, you know, the problem we have is with the psychological fabric of our country as a low level, emotional civil war has begun in too many ways to rip us apart. In order to deal with that, we must address it to the level of our internal being. Now that's great. I, I totally hear you with that, and I understand that. But why is that the job of the president of the United States? Couldn't couldn't you? Aren't you more valuable to the country outside of government, uh, or even in government, as the, maybe the, the Secretary of <coughs> Healing or something like that? Why Why is that the job of the president? Because the issue is public
1: policy. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt said the primary. Uh, role of the presidency is moral leadership. He said the uh, administrative aspect of the job is secondary. So we can talk all we want to about the fact that we need moral healing, moral regeneration, etc. But as long as that conversation remains over on the periphery, where public policy is not being made, and public policy is being more influence, rather than by a deep philosophical and moral conversation, by the outsized financial influence of multinational corporations who are seeking to increase their profits before any advocacy for morality or ethics, then darn right, what we need is someone within the political sphere speaking the issues that matter most, which is this deeper moral issue underneath all the other ones. This is an aberration in American history, that we have a political system which gets away with being so divorced from deep democratic and humanitarian principles.
0: So this ties in with I got an email from you the other day, (laughs) email blast, not a personal one. And you said, quote, we will not defeat the president with a political argument. We will not defeat the president with an economic argument. We will not defeat the argument, the president with a purely rational argument. We will defeat the president with the moral argument. But, but, you know, Marianne, we, we've had, we've heard the president bragging on tape about sexual assault weeks before the last election. America voted for him. We know that two dozen women have, uh, there's credible sexual assault or, or sexual impropriety uh, allegations against the president. We know that he paid hush money to, to a porn star, um, and we know that he's made twelve thousand false or misleading statements. I mean, evangelicals even say that you know he that you know they're not uptight about him. Uh, what is? People seem to be settled in their positions on Trump. Hasn't the moral argument kind of been settled on this? People are in their own positions on this.
1: Not at all, because we have not. We have not proffered to the American people, we have not submitted to the American people, a moral alternative. You know, when you go into a court of law in the United States, you raise your hand and you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I'm not saying that the other candidates aren't telling the truth. They are telling the truth. But they're not telling the whole truth. And they're not telling nothing but the truth. And if you want to start telling the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, then we have to talk about the ways that we ourselves, the entire political class, r- left as well as right, has been willing to conspire with what are essentially amoral and even immoral forces.
0: Talk a little bit about that. because okay. the, 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 And as you would said, so so memorably in the debate, the, the dark psychic force. What is the dark psychic
1: force? Well, the dark fi- psychic force is simply collectivized hatred, racism, bigotry, anti-Semitism, homophobia, Islamophobia, and xenophobia all wrapped into one, mm-hmm. given great or power by social media and then harnessed for political purposes by nothing less than the President of the United States. The point is you can't, you can't defeat dog whistles. You have to drown them out by singing a much more powerful tune. And we are not singing a far more powerful tune. All we're saying is we don't like that. That's all we're saying because we are not yet positing a genuinely moral politics. A moral politics means the moral argument regarding uh, an amoral economic system. A moral argument, for instance, regarding the fact that what could be a greater moral out? What could be a greater moral travesty? What could be a greater immoral? Uh, fact than the fact that here in the, in the richest country in the United States, we have millions of American children, the vast, vast majority of whom are American citizens, by the way, who should be entitled to the same inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, who live in chronic, e- chronic trauma. Chronic trauma. We have millions of American children who go to school every day mm-hmm. asking the teacher if maybe the teacher has something they could eat. We have millions of American children going to school every day in classrooms that do not even have the adequate school supplies with which to teach a child to read. <clears throat> and if a child cannot learn to read by the age of eight, the chances of high school graduation are drastically decreased and the chances of of incarceration are drastically mm-hmm. increased. Mm-hmm. We have a, a Chicago... Um, A Tribune article recently talked about how 40 percent of the girls in Chicago public schools are thought to have a form of PTSD, PTSD that is no less severe, psychologists tell us, than the PTSD of returning veteran from uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. Mm. Now, the political class has done nothing more than to normalize the despair of these children because they're not old enough to vote. So they don't represent a constituency. Mm-hmm. They're not old enough to <clears throat> to uh, work. So they have no financial leverage. And in a system like ours, which has become little more than a system of legalized bribery, what chance do these children have to compete with the cloud of the corporate so, forces? So this so is a moral you... politics. So S- when you ask me how we do it, by stating a moral politics. Including not only with the children, but a deeper truth-telling and and restitution around race, around Native Americans, and around our national security agenda. I am only one of two presidential candidates even talking about U.S. military policy, nuclear, sec- uh, 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 national security agenda, et cetera. What does that tell
0: you? Let's let's unpack a couple of those uh, uh, one at a time here. Uh, Number one, let's talk about uh, reparations. You, one of the biggest uh, applause uh, lines you got last night in Oakland. Uh, by the way, one of the more diverse crowds I've seen among any of the uh, the uh, candidates that I've <coughs> checked out in, uh, this year. Um, and you want to talk about reparations for African American folks to compensate for the legacy of slavery? You want to allot two hundred to five hundred billion dollars over twenty years? It would be distributed by a council of African American leaders, as you said. It's not for you, you know. Sixty-seven-year-old rich white woman to be to be handed about the out rich the money. Part, but well, yeah, come on, come on. Uh, the uh, and you goofed on some of the other your rival candidates who say uh, uh, and let's call them out. Warren and Bernie and who said let's let's establish a council to the study a commission to study this issue. And you are like, hey, after four hundred years, don't we have enough evidence?
1: And then there was one who said, you can't just write checks.
0: Who who was that? Call not oh, out. Don't know. Come on. It's, it's your job to figure out. Okay, that all way. right. Um. First of all, how did you come to that position? Okay. Uh, how, where are you coming from on that? Uh, how yeah. did you get to that position? Well, and where, did, where did you get that $200 to $500 billion figure from?
1: <laughs> at the end of the Civil War in 1865, General Tecumseh Sherman promised to every uh, former slave family of four, 40 acres and a mule. There were between four and five million slaves at the end of the Civil War. So if you actually did the math in today's terms, that would be trillions of dollars. Now, it's like when somebody bids on a house uh somebody as i'll say this is what i want to sell my house for well you've got to come in within the range because if you come in too low i'm not even going to call you back so i feel that a hun- that i feel trillions is I-, I wouldn't even support it myself and i don't believe it's politically feasible uh, anything less than 100 billion is almost insulting mm. so i i sense that 200 to 500 billion now remember politics is an art as much as it's a science yeah i sense that 200 to 500 billion is politically feasible that's why I chose. So, is there, that.
0: but is there a study or anything that you're basing that figure on, or just <clears throat> just a just a, well, a starting figure? Well, you've got the trillions here. of
1: dollars. You've got the fact that if you actually to do the math, it would be trillions. You got the fact that. Uh, 100 billion, I feel myself, is, is an insult. If you don't give enough money, right. first of all, if you if you propose too much money, it's, it's, a, it's politically dead in the water. If you propose too little money, then even if you get it, you're going to have a younger generation of American black people who say, oh, yeah, right, right? which means the whole thing would have been in vain. So I believe that 200, 500 billion is a politically feasible number to lay on the table. Listen, anything's a negotiation. Right. But I'm saying, I'm starting with that number, as you do with any negotiation.
0: Right. Okay. So, and and you say, uh, a council of uh, leading African-American leaders to... To would be administering this, and you mentioned Tennessee Coates and and such. Have, have you asked him to about I this? I have talked.
1: To, I have not met uh, okay. Tennessee Coates, but I have talked to Sandy Darity. The, this is the
0: president of Duke University.
1: Uh, he he's at yes, Sandy at, Darity at Duke yeah. University. Yes, or who has studied this for years, yeah. <clears throat> and I have great trust in him and faith in him. He said, "How would we do this?" I said, "I'll tell you how we do this. I'm elected president. I call you up and I say, Sandy, we're going to spend a weekend at Camp David. Who do you think should be there?"
0: And so that, that's what we do. Uh, Listen,
1: you know what? I've spent enough time around politicians, including in the White House, and including not, I, I'm not trying to overdo my time there, but I've had enough yeah. to get that that's how it works in politics as much as anything else. People sit down and they talk. And that's what I would say. We're going to have a weekend. Who are we going to bring? Let's start.
0: And uh, what you would, uh, what, how did you come to this? Why did, why does reparations mean so much to you?
1: <clears throat> in running for president, I am submitting to the American people a plan for our transformation. We will not transform, and I don't even think we'll beat Donald Trump, if all we're talking about is incremental change or external change on a level of policy.
0: Yes, you, you just said t- this is the, as you were saying your website, the <coughs> issues are not always the, the issue. <laughs> so the issue of
1: what they call an Alcoholics Anonymous, admitting the exact nature of your character defects, uh-huh. and taking a fearless moral inventory. This is how lives transform. This is how systems transform. This is how countries transform. This is why Germany paid eighty-nine billion dollars in reparations to Jewish organizations since World War II. <clears throat> it's why the United States, Ronald Reagan, signed the American Civil Liberties Act, where twenty to twenty thousand dollars was given to each surviving prisoner from the the um,
0: Japanese uh, internment. Japanese
1: internment camps. The idea here is that just like the Catholics go to confession or the Jews on Yom Kippur, you can't have the future you want unless you're willing to clean up a past. That's what right. I want to do as president. I want to help this country end one chapter and usher in a new one. So <clears throat> we, this civil war ended in 1865. Mm -hmm. And we are still passing generation to generation to generation this baton of toxicity. It's time to start a new chapter here that cannot be uh, ended. The old one cannot be ended just through differences in housing policy or differences in even in criminal justice we we need a more fundamental break with the past in many areas we need a fundamental pattern disruption with economic social and political realities that have come to define our age
0: but when you talk about a moral politics don't other candidates express their moral politics let's say in a medicare for all i want i believe it's morally <laughs> right to cover everyone with health, Everyone should have access to health care. Or they say, I want a, uh, and I think you, you believe this too, a, uh, I want to have early childhood education because I believe that's morally right. Is that, what's the difference in well, what definitely. they're saying in policy and you're saying yeah, it's sort of I, different, uh, uh, well, different terms, different Right. Realm. I'm
1: not saying that my vision for the world is more moral than any other candidates. That's mm-hmm. not what I'm saying. But right. I am saying this. The Republicans, often with Republicans, they don't walk their talk. But often with the Democrats, they don't talk their walk. so this this over secularized over corporatized conversation that has come to define the the democratic party has not served us it has made many people within the faith traditions feel minimized condescended to and i know a lot about that right now because i'm experiencing it from them Mm -hmm. like we're somehow less uh, less like if you bring up any dimension of moral or spirituality that you are less sophisticated less intelligent less intellectual um how's that worked out for you guys (laughs) is how I say to that. Are you sure you really want to go this way? You sure you want to make everybody into health and wellness out there feel like they're dismissed and condescended to how's that going to work for you? This I think it's just outrageous, actually. But more than that, I grew up at a time where there was Bobby Kennedy, talking about the soul of America, Martin Luther King, even JFK, who said we cannot afford to be materially rich and spiritually poor. So number one, I'm talking about a larger conversation, but number two, if you have that larger conversation, you have to look at these things on a level of policy. So when you talk about health care, I agree with you. When you talked about the level of children... I think you're making my point. This goes so much deeper than, than universal pre-K. We have millions of American children who are traumatized before they even get to pre-K. We have a relatively high level of maternal mortality. We have a relatively high level of infant mortality. We have children who are not being fed enough. This goes on way before they even get to preschool so, age. So
0: what would you do about those kids?
1: <clears throat> I want to have a United States Department of Children and Youth. I want to sit down. This is the power of the president say, coordinative body. I want not only educators, I want experts in childhood in in childhood psychology and the childhood brain neuropsychologists. We now know things going on in the brain of a child under 8. They didn't even know a, a 50 years ago. You really want peace on this planet? You want prosperity on this planet, not just in this country but on this planet? Address the children. I want a massive realignment of investment in the direction of America's children. <clears throat> I want every school in America to, no matter what neighborhood, to be a palace of learning and culture and the arts. And no, other Democrats
0: are not saying that. All right. Let's talk about vaccinations because I know this issue keeps coming. Marianne just rolled her eyes and, and I, <laughs> because this issue keeps coming back uh, in your campaign. Now, a while back, you know, it's been reported and you've, you've pushed back on this. That you thought mandatory vaccinations were, quote, draconian and, or William. You walked that back. You said yeah, you misspoke. I did. I yes. should not have said that. Yes. I'm sorry that I yes. did. And then you said you're pro vaccine, pro science. But you also have been often been skeptical about the uh, vaccinations and the need for them. And...
1: I wouldn't hold on just because this, this has become so big. Let's be clear. Yeah, Skeptical about vaccinations, I have not expressed. Skeptical about big pharma in general, I have expressed. And there is a big difference.
0: Yes. You said, I think there's a quote. This is a quote. I think there's a skepti- skepticism, <laughs> which is actually healthy on this issue of vaccinations. You said Was that, that to, exact to, line? to Bill Maher. Yes. Um, but mm-hmm. th- it gets tied to the a pharma. Few years ago? Yes. This is yeah. a few years ago. Um, so, but I want to talk to you about something that's happened today. Today, CNN, as you as you know, is reporting that on, uh, on a radio show you hosted back in 2012, your guest was the author, Gwen Olson, and she wrote a story called, or a book called Confessions of an Rx uh, Drug Pusher. Caller called in. She said she had avoided uh, vaccinating her three-year-old daughter by not taking her to the doctor. And you said, let's have Gwen answer and uh, then you said i'm curious myself gwen i know i agonized on this uh, i agonize as a mother on this topic so please just clarify this cuz this is important cuz we've had you know measles outbreaks and such uh, this year do you support mandatory vaccinations
1: yes and i and i refer you to what year that show was
0: 2012
1: 2012. It is now 2019. Mm-hmm. That was before all this business about measles. That was for all, before all this business about reducing the personal and the religious exemptions. So I think in 2012, what I said in that was totally reasonable
0: you thought that was reasonable
1: but Mac- in 2012 and Where i didn't do you think- commit to anything i i said there's a conversation going on this was before the measles outbreak this was before this c- shutting down of the of all those uh religious and personal exemptions
0: what do you think uh, what exemptions do you think should exist for people I'm who have not concern? a scientist
1: That was not yeah. for me to say and i wouldn't weigh in i will say this however anytime there is a medical intervention there is both benefit and risk the government must always come down on the side of public safety. I I believe that. I have always believed that and would never have said differently.
0: Okay. I mean, and measles was considered uh, uh, eradicated in what? Uh, yes, in and in if, 20- babies
1: get, if babies get uh, measles, it's going to be very, very serious. Yes. I do not in any way underestimate that.
0: Okay. Um, I want to talk about the, your national security policy, which is also very interesting. You, uh, you talk about how you would transform the <laughs> Department of Defense which now is a $700 billion budget, uh, you know, and transform what goes on with the Department well, of Defense.
1: Well, if I may, my father fought in World War II. Yes. I have great respect for the military. Yes, My critique here is not of the military. My critique of our national security agenda has to do with political
0: decisions. The priorities. I,
1: I, exactly. The, the, that in no way is a criticism of, of the military. As president, the military under my administration would have every single dollar, every single dollar that the military says they need in order to keep this country safe. What I have talked about is the hundreds of billions of dollars that are arguably spent on top of that, <clears throat> that have less to do with, uh, with the actual legitimate security needs and more to do with short-term profit maximization of defense contracts. You
0: talk about the military-industrial complex last night. You quoted the President Eisenhower about about that. That's what your concern is on, on, well, on the military. Yes, That's one I, of your concerns. And
1: I think it's very interesting, particularly when we talk to younger people, because you know, I think the older you get, part of your role is that you're a keeper of the stories. You, uh, you're younger than me, but still you're probably old enough and educated enough in such topics. You clearly know. <clears throat> but a lot of younger people don't. <clears throat> White Eisenhower was the supreme allied commander during World War II. This yes. was not a man who disrespected right. or underestimated or he, undervalued he legitimacy the needs of the military. It, yes. <clears throat> Before World War II, however, there was not a standing army. Afterwards, there was. This man was then president, Republican president, between 1952 and 1960. He was the one who coined the phrase. He was the one who pointed out what any intelligent person should consider as part of our uh, part of, uh, of of the conversation we should be having. The fact that once you have a standing army, once you have billions of dollars that are to be made on war, even though we have wars, <clears throat> we have wars against, uh, laws against war profiteering, there's a way in which it could be argued that the whole st- whole structure has within it a level of war profiteering. So that's what I, I'm talking about. But uh, equally important to me is the fact that just like you can't uh, you can't just take medicine, you have to cultivate health. Uh, sickness is the absence of health. Health is not the absence of sickness. Mm. And similarly, you cannot just spend money on war making <clears throat> preparedness and hope for, to back your way into peace. You have to cultivate peace. War is the absence of peace. Peace is not the absence of war. And every dollar we spend on peace building, we end up spending a thousand or more on preparations for war. When you consider that we spend $750 billion on our military budget, then our State Department, which is mediation, development, diplomacy, et cetera, gets $40 billion. Yes. <clears throat> Within that, the, the humanitarian aid to USAID is $17 billion, And our actual peace-building agencies get less than a billion. So and where... the Independent U.S. Institute of Peace gets something like $1.6 million.
0: Right. Where, where do you draw the line on how to how and when to respond militarily, you wouldn't have any hesitation. Like if uh, America were to be attacked, where, where do where do you draw the line? What what would be your requirements uh, for using the military?
1: When one of our military, when one of our allies is attacked or threatened, absolutely that.
0: One of our NATO allies, for absolutely.
1: Example. Number one, number two, when we ourselves are attacked or under a threat of attack, or number three, when the humanitarian order of the world is at risk.
0: I, I would, you know, I when when so Bill, in other words, like the Rwandan genocide, you <coughs> Rwandan genocide,
1: that? and I'll tell you what else, Croatia. Oh, and, and I, I was one of the I was with the Republicans in that. What well, took him so long? <laughs> I was actually Still, uh, President Clinton. That, you're that's right. It. That's right. And before what well, took him? So, I I absolutely hmm. so. uh I, I'm not...
0: A, a How about passive. the 9-11 attacks? How would you have uh, responded? Obviously you, I would you have wouldn't, responded. wouldn't have gone into Iraq, but I mean, where would you... Well, you... I
1: certainly would have uh, uh, gone into Afghanistan, however. You would have gone yeah, Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was legitimate. In fact, what was illegitimate was, in my mind, was uh, transferring so many of the resources uh, that were were at play in Afghanistan, just sort of handing it over to the warlords and moving so many of those resources to a country that obviously had nothing to do with 9-11, that had no al-Qaeda, and that actually served as of buffer between us and Iran.
0: How about on cyber uh, security? Would you uh, <clears throat> make preemptive attacks on, on on other countries and try and mess with them uh, in terms of using our, our cyber? Uh, I
1: don't want to commit uh, to something like make preemptive attacks, but uh, I will tell you this, I think an intelligent observer is very aware that that's where, that's where warfare is being fought now. And so on the level of cyber security, absolutely. If anything else, I would beef it up. Um, I want to ask you
0: one or two more questions. And, and may the, I say, can, yep. before
1: we get off the yeah, yeah. peace thing, because, you know, <laughs> I have <clears throat> talked about the establishment of the United States Department of Peace. Yes. The, the head of USAID, Humanitarian Assistance, right now the peace-building agencies within the State Department sort of sit over on the side of the room. In my administration, they will have a, a powerful and equal place at the table. When I look at national security, do I look at, do I look at, 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 at the military? Absolutely. It's like a surgeon. If you're going to have surgery, you've got to have the best surgeon. But anybody knows you kind of avoid surgery if possible. Mm-hmm. So to me, using, beefing up <clears throat> a far more robust peace-building factor in, in our national security agenda is absolutely what I will bring to the table. You said
0: positive. this. you wanted to uh, make sure people aren't desperate around the world. Well, let's talk about are, that. Yeah.
1: Desperate people, large groups of desperate people should be considered a national security risk. After, look at what happened after World War I. <clears throat> this is an interesting example because the American president was the one who was correct. The reparations towards Germany at the end of World War I as, um, as, as uh, executed by the Allies was basically Deutschmark till we tell you to stop. Woodrow Wilson went around saying that's a really bad idea. Making the, the German people so crushed economically and socially after World War I, that became a petri dish out of which Hitler more easily emerged. Mm-hmm. This is this is true everywhere. There's yes. nothing more dangerous to national security, whether it's in a corner of a U.S. city or in a corner of the world, in large groups of desperate people. Desperate people do desperate things. Desperate people are more vulnerable to ideological capture by genuinely psychotic forces. This is why we did the Marshall Plan. This is why we helped yes.
0: Japan rebuild. Um, quick uh Two quick uh, last things. And when where are you at on the? Uh, do you think you can make the debate stage? I know you've had well, you'll I'm get the donors. <clears throat> you'll be close to the donors. Uh, the polls. What do you think? Because you need two percent. Well, 2%. we
1: have. Uh, we will definitely make the donors. We will definitely make to the one thirty thousand vote donors. I think we need fewer than five thousand. I hope people will go to Marianne twenty twenty. It's plug time. It plug time. Plug away. Plug away. It is. And if you <laughs> if someone has not given before even a dollar, and if you have give give more, it's it's so much about the money and a really a uh, horrifying way, even with the polls, because... But do you think
0: this process has been fair? No. no it hasn't been fair. Well, I mean, I'm not... Someone talking like to... you who was, I mean, it was it the neophyte candidate who was able to participate in the first couple of debates? Do so you think that's fair?
1: Well, well, hold on. When you say it's fair, I, I didn't mean to me. Fair, oh, period.
0: Fair, period. Well, how about fair to you?
1: Fair, period. Um, I, I I don't even want to go there. I will say this. <laughs> I don't believe there should be such strong gatekeepers. Mm-hmm. I think that the press has a role of gatekeeper, but I too often see a lack of journalistic ethics in the exercising of that gatekeeping. Mm-hmm. And the Constitution does not even mention political parties. Right. And George Washington warned us against them. So the debates used to be held by uh, all presidential debate type situation used to be the League of Women Voters.
0: So would you like to see us return to that type of Well, I, I I was, should they, There has to be some form of gatekeepers, <laughs> right? There has to
1: be something. But these debates... I, I don't know. We'll know in the, in the next few days yeah. uh, whether or not I make the 2% in four polls.
0: Is that existential to your campaign? You're, you're going to keep going whether you're on this. Uh, on I the debate I will look stage into or. my
1: heart and I will see. Right now, I know that my words are landing in places where they need to land. You heard me last night. Yes. I know that in conversations such as you and I are having today, we're talking about deeply important things. That are not being discussed in other campaigns. Put those two things together. And my feeling is very strong. I'm supposed to be
0: doing this. And so you're going to, I mean, I think one woman told me last night, she goes, you know, all the candidates are full of shit. So uh, if you're going to roll with one, why not roll with someone who's talking about love as the cornerstone of her campaign? Is that important for you to stay in to just? make sure that message is out there well, or for- are you going to like if this was not happening you're 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 not going to be shy about pulling the plug right
1: First of all, I don't think the other candidates are full of shit. Those were her words. (laughs) Those were her words. Um, I'm I'm not running against anyone. I'm running with a lot of great people. Whoever the Democratic candidate is, I'm going to be doing whatever I can to support that. We all know, all the candidates know what's really important here, and that is the defeat of Donald Trump in 2020. I feel very strongly about what I don't think would defeat him, and I feel very strongly about the idea that even if we defeat him in 2020, if that's all we do, those same forces will be back so strongly in 22 and 24. But I'm not here just to elevate the conversation. I'm here to elevate America. And a political media establishment calling me a long shot is a narrative that they created before I even was something that would be expressed in the numbers that way. And I don't like that. Mm-hmm. It's not good for our democracy. The fact that I'm inconvenient to that system is the point. The fact that I'm disruptive to that system is the point. So um, I can only speak for what's true on any given day. Right here, you better believe I'm in it. And right now, I'm in it to win it.
0: All right. Uh, One last question. Uh, You were around these folks, your fellow candidates for a while. You were very tuned into energy. Who has the best energy from the other candidates?
1: They're all really lovely people. Who's, who's, who
0: kind of like? There's the not interview. a matter of a best
1: energy. No. Uh if somebody has the worst energy, but I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> who it is. It's not bad energy. It's is just it? an energy. The reason why are you here? But most of them,
0: are we, are most we, of them, at least. Never, we, can we say yeah. d- does, it, does it rhyme with Mulaney? No, Delaney. he's the
1: one I have not met. Oh, you haven't met Delaney. He's the one because oh, you've different nights. Yeah, he's the one okay. I have not met. Okay. Uh, so, you but know, one candidate the, does not have. Yeah, listen, it's fine. It's it's not, it has, it's not rude. It's just kind of like, you know, you know, I have to tell you, if anything, it's just an honor to be part of it. And yeah. I would say the camaraderie among the candidates is really pretty beautiful. Yeah. It's wonderful. I,
0: I think they're all fabulous people. All right. Marianne, thank you so much for being on the so, so political. I appreciate it. Thank you. I'd like to thank you all for listening. I'd like to thank Marion Williamson for coming into San Francisco today to do the podcast. I'd like to thank the king, King Kaufman, for producing today's podcast. And remember, whether you have good energy or not, it's all political. It's All Political as part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Audrey Cooper is our editor-in-chief. Our music, our theme music that we have is Cattle Call. That's written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. If you like this show, subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For more great journalism like this, subscribe to the San Francisco Chronicle at SanFranciscoChronicle.com slash subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Garifoli. Thanks.